0: Uh, as you know, uh, we have been in Genesis since about August. And uh, the last seven weeks is the seventh week that we've been looking at Abraham. In the book of Genesis, and uh, Abraham himself very much serve as foundational pieces of how to understand the whole of the Scriptures. And as we see Abraham and God interact with one another, uh, we see that uh, they have this relationship, this covenant between the two of them, and it's pretty one-sided. God does a whole lot more than Abraham does in this relationship. But this word covenant, we don't use very often. I I don't think you've been in many conversations this week and the word covenant just uh, came up. And a covenant is, uh, is any kind of relationship, any kind of agreement that establishes a relationship that's made under solemn oath, that lays obligations on both parties, not only does it lay obligations on both parties, but it, it, it gives consequences if you follow or don't follow those obligations. So if, if you follow those obligations, you get blessings. If you don't follow those obligations, you get curses. So it's still a good word. It's hard to come up with a, a different word than covenant to explain this kind of relationship. I mean, just take marriage, for instance, which is a covenant. You know, if you fulfill the vows, you fulfill the obligations of faithfulness to your spouse, then you'll experience unity and intimacy. These are great blessings. But if you don't fulfill your vows, your obligations of faithfulness to your spouse, then you and your spouse will experience great heartache or curses. And this covenant relationship that Abraham has with God starts in chapter 12. And God's very clear about what the relationship's going to entail, what he's going to do for Abraham. But God has to repeat this covenant over and over again from when he first gives it in chapter 12, verses 1 and 3. You see that God has to repeat it just four verses later, chapter 12, verse 7. He has to do it again in chapter 13, verses 14 to 17. He does it again in chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Then he does it in 15 again verses 18 and 21. So here he comes again in our text today, Genesis chapter 17, to tell Abraham the same thing that he's already told him five times. So why does he have to do this? Why does he have to do this six times now? Well, it's because Abraham's forgetful. Uh, Abraham's dense. Abraham's unbelieving. He's a roller coaster. And, and if you to look at his life like we have been, how he's doing, you'll see that there's little consistency. There's peaks and valleys. I mean, there at the very beginning where God makes his promises to him in chapter 12, verses 1 and 9, God makes the promises, but then abrahams he's on his A game. He does exactly what God tells him to do. He obeys God's call to leave his culture and his family and his wealth, and he goes and sets up altars. It's a peak for him. But then he hits a valley right there in verse 10, chapter 12. He lies about his relationship with Sarah to the Pharaoh, and he does it all to save his neck. And he puts Sarah in great danger. It's a valley. Then chapter 13, he, after he leaves Egypt, he goes back to Bethel where he's worshipped in, in, in times previous. And you see him, he's being very generous towards his nephew Lot. It's a peak. Chapter 14, he defeats four kings from the east to save his nephew Lot. And you see him interacting with two kings. One's Melchizedek, the other is the king of Sodom. And he does it with great integrity. That's chapter 14, it's a peak. Chapter 15, he hits a valley. He questions if God is actually going to do what he said and actually give him a son. Chapter 16, what we looked at last week, you see that Abraham passively participates in Sarah's unbelief and creates this huge mess, valley, peaks, valleys. You know, Abraham sounds like, sounds like me. I mean, Abraham's just like us in that he needs somewhere other than himself to place the anchor of his faith. He needs God, just like we do, to remind us that he is more stable than we are. And perhaps Abraham needs this reminder in chapter 17 more than ever. I mean, it's been 23 years since he received the initial promise of a son. He and his wife were old and barren 23 years ago. Now they're even older and seemingly more barren now. So he needs a reminder. And maybe that's you today. (laughs) Maybe... Your track record has been a lot like Abraham's. You need to know that your failures haven't disqualified you. You wonder if this whole Jesus thing actually took in your life. So you need God to come in and give you a stable word. Maybe today you need the reminder that something bigger than what we see out in our world is the basis of your faith. You see something of the shooting in Nashville and it causes you to doubt if God's promises are real, so you need a reminder this morning. Well, that's what you'll get. You'll get a hearty reminder that God loves you in Genesis chapter 17. Let's read it together. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, "'I am God Almighty. "'Walk before me and be blameless.'" that I may make a covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you." Verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. Shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The word of the Lord. You can go ahead and get all your giggles out. I mean, we're all just good old middle schoolers here today. Uh, but I always wonder, why, why, why circumcision? Why, why couldn't he just get an earring instead? And I think we're going to find out today. And the word circumcision was used a lot in that chapter, but really the dominant word of Genesis chapter 17 isn't really circumcision. The dominant word is covenant. And by God using this word 13 times in this chapter, he's trying to emphasize just how committed he is to Abraham. I mean, sure, Abraham does some participating, but God is the one doing the heavy lifting in this relationship. It's a very unequal partnership. You even see it in the words used. I mean, Abraham gives two very brief speeches. God gives five extended speeches in chapter 17. And God's speeches are just really a a reminder, but he's doing more than just reminding Abraham of, of things that he already knew. He's also expanding the covenant to make it even more marvelous than it was before. You see it in our text. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, you see the phrase, multitude of nations. This is new in God's covenant with Abraham. What we had before from chapter 12, verse 2, is that God just says, I will make you a great nation. But now, God is promising that he's going to be the father of a multitude of nations. So you see, the knob's getting turned up. Look at verses 7 and 8. You see a, a, a word there. You see the word everlasting. Well, previously we knew that the covenant was going to be for Abraham and his descendants. It's clearly going to be a relationship that's going to, that's going to last for, multitude of, uh, for multiple generations. But in this chapter, you find out it's going to be more than a long-lasting covenant. It's going to be an everlasting covenant. The knob's getting turned up. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, it says that kings are going to come from Abraham. Well, Abraham knew that he's going to have offspring at this point, but he didn't know that kings were going to come from him, that his descendants were going to be royal in nature. The knob's getting turned up. And look what God does in verse 7. If we were to look at all the other places that I listed off earlier of where God's talking about his relationship with Abraham He never uses the language that he does in verse seven. In verse seven, he says that I will be your God. If you've been around the Bible a lot, you know that this is a common phrase, but this is a new one for Abraham. Up to this point, Abraham just knows he's getting a bunch of gifts. He's getting descendants or offspring. He's getting a land. He's going to be protected and defended by God. He's going to be a blessing to many nations. He knows all of that. Those are the gifts. But he finds out in verse 7 that he's getting not just gifts, he's getting the giver himself. So the knob's getting turned up. See, each of these, they're expansions or improvements on the original promises. The promises are growing. They're becoming more and more grand as the story unfolds. This is very much how our relationship with God works, how the covenant relationship works between us and the Lord. I mean, think about what Jesus has done for us. I mean, just think about the incarnation. We celebrate every year at Christmas. You see that God is in the flesh, that he's born of a virgin, that he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, that would be enough for me. That's enough for me to marvel at. But God wants us to marvel at more than just Him coming and being flesh. He wants us to see His person. He wants us to see how normal Jesus is in many ways. He's born to poor parents. He has to learn a trade just like many of us have to do. But then when He gets public in ministry, He's performing these unbelievable miracles. He's forgiving sins. He's interacting with hurting people with such gentleness. He's confronting people in such subversive ways, the proud and the arrogant. His teaching is otherworldly. He's being so kind to sinners. When you see Jesus interacting with other people in the Gospels, it leaves you in trance. And that would be enough for me. If I just had the incarnation of the person of Jesus, that would work. That would be something for me to give my life to. But then there's the cross. And you, you see during the events of the Passion Week that Jesus is in complete control. He's in complete control in his betrayal and his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. So much so that it becomes completely clear that he is electively suffering on behalf of those he loves. And that would be enough for me. But th- th- then it keeps building. You, you get the resurrection where he's deader than dead and he comes back to life. He gets this glorified body that can pass through walls and ingest food. That'd be enough for me. But then the promises just get better. I mean, he goes back into heaven, and when he ascends, he sends the Spirit to indwell believers so that all believers around the world at all times can know his personal presence and power. I mean, that would be enough for me. But then you have the consummation. I mean, as great as the Spirit's presence is in our lives, we still live in this terribly broken world. We have to deal with natural disasters and political upheaval with unjust systems. We have the continued individual brokenness within ourselves. We have to deal with evil spirits. We have to deal with physical death. But Jesus is going to come back. And when he returns, he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. And everything's going to be made right. And it's going to be even better than we can imagine. Isn't that enough for you? I mean, I could go on and on. But as you consider each aspect of the gospel, you realize that we're in a similar position as Abraham. This thing's just getting better and better and better. But Abraham had to look at what God said and he couldn't look at his circumstances because his circumstances would just make him sink. His circumstances looked bleak. He was old and childless and his faith is very inconsistent. So he had to look at what God was doing and what God had promised in the past and he had to look at what God had promised for his future because his presence spelled nothing but doom. We got to do the same thing. We've got to look to Jesus, his birth, his life, his resurrection, his death, his ascension, his consummation, instead of ourselves. Because we're willy-nilly. God's rock solid. But if you keep looking at your present, you're going to be anxious, you're going to be sad, and you won't have the hope of the gospel. But this whole business of, looking back and looking forward instead of the present, this whole business of looking outside of ourselves and looking at God, this thing is a a lifelong journey for all of us. We never arrive. And it requires an inner life of knowing some things about ourselves and knowing some things about God. And it gets really confusing. It gets really confusing to know what we're feeling versus what God is saying, isn't it? You ever wondered that? Is God telling me something or am I just feeling something? See, we're just a fickle bunch. And so it was Abraham, clearly. So God has to give us something objective, something physical, something tangible to stabilize us and, and to externalize our relationship with him. And for Abraham, it was circumcision. For us, it's baptism. And that's why God gives Abraham circumcision. So let's, let's look at it here. I mean, here's Abraham. Can you imagine being him? I mean, it's hard to imagine him being told something more difficult than what he's told in our text. He has to circumcise himself. I mean, that's tough news. And then he's got to circumcise his 13-year-old son, Ishmael. Tough news. He's got to baptize all those in his household, a bunch of other grown men. It's tough news. And if I were Abraham, I'd be like, hey, uh, God, I know about this guy Noah a few generations ago. You were in covenant relationship with him. And when you wanted to give him a sign, you gave him a rainbow. It's beautiful and painless. And here you are. You're asking me to, I mean, can you imagine him coming home from being spoken to by God? And he gets everybody in front of him and says, all right, boys, I've got news for you. But here's the thing. Here's why Abraham didn't get an earring. See, Abraham understood that this wasn't a curse, even though it was painful. And he understood what the covenant was tied to. Remember, the covenant that God has with Abraham is about him having descendants. It's about the powers of procreation. So it's going to involve his sexual organ. Now up to this point, he and Sarah, they've been unable to produce a child. It's a very sad thing for them. It's also a place of repentance for Abraham. I mean, he took things into his own hands and he went with Sarah's plan and he lay with Hagar and he had a son, Ishmael. The circumcision was also in some ways an act of repentance for him. And it's going to take a miracle for him to have a baby. So this circumcision served as an external sign that God would indeed give him descendants. But the external sign pointed not just to descendants, it also pointed to an inward reality. See, so you, you get into the Old Testament and you find out that this holding a circumcision is also spoken of as being done on the inside, that you are to be circumcised of the heart. You see it in Deuteronomy 30, you see it in Jeremiah 4, you see it in Ezekiel 44. Then you see it in the New Testament. You have Paul in Romans chapter 2. He talks about Old Testament believers and that Old Testament believers were required to be circumcised, yes, outwardly, but they, to be a true Old Testament believer that they had to be circumcised inwardly. But what does it mean to be circumcised inwardly? What does it mean to be circumcised of the heart? Well, I mean, just like physical circumcision, heart circumcision involves removal, a removal of sin, that God's going to have to do the surgery on your heart and take away the sin. And once he does, you have this new identity, this new identity that bonds you with the rest of his people. And think about who who, who the the people are in, in, in Genesis chapter 17. The reason this wasn't just for Abraham, it included all those in his household, and those in his household weren't all Jewish. They weren't all Israelites. And so it's a diverse thing, that it's not just an ethnic thing, but it also included children, that God tells Abraham that all children from this day forward were to be circumcised on the eighth day. It included the women, and that they were included through their fathers and through their husbands. But when you get to the New Testament, this whole business of circumcision changes, and it changes the baptism. You see in Acts chapter 15 that the early church leaders established this transfer. and It means much the same thing, but includes new elements, and it expands it to men and women. And now believers, along with their children, just like circumcision, are a part of God's family, and it's marked by being baptized. I mean, think about what Jesus said to the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. He says, Go into all nations and make disciples. He doesn't say, and circumcise them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, does he? He says, go into all nations, make disciples, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So these waters, these waters of baptism signify being cleansed of our sin just like being circumcised of heart means having your sin removed. But there's a couple of dangers when we come to any outward practice like baptism. One's the danger of empty ritual. You put all the emphasis on the act itself. And when you do, it's barely anything more than a ceremony or a custom, and there's no meaning attached to it. So we've got to curb that danger. We've got to realize the inward aspect of our baptism. We have to realize that it's, Just a sign that points to a greater reality, the forgiveness of sin. The other danger is to be superstitious about baptism, that there's something magical about these waters. There's nothing magical about these waters, they come out of the sink in the kitchen, in the back hallway. That's where the waters are found. There's nothing special about me performing the baptism. What's special about the baptism is that God is active in it. That God is the one who does this work on our hearts, that he's the one who forgives our sin on the inside. But there's also a danger in undervaluing baptism. See, sometimes you think that this baptism is just for the family or just for the individual getting baptized. But what God would have is that he would have us personalize every baptism that we witness A friend of mine uh, served as a pastor of an older church for 10 years. He would say it's his favorite job ever. He would say he wished he could have stayed there his whole tenure. And the average age of the church when he started in year one, the average age was 63. He loved his church. And in return, these people loved him and they loved his family. He told me how it's easy to think that pastors are the ones teaching their people all the stuff, but he said in this instance, they were teaching him all the stuff. They had decades of walking with Jesus that he was able to glean from as their pastor. He said it was such a privilege to minister to them as they were sick and dying. He said it was a privilege for him to officiate funerals. And I asked you about the funerals because I don't do very many. I think I'm at three at this point in my ministry. So when I think about funerals, I'm like, that's the saddest thing you could ever do. And he said it was, that was not the saddest part of his job. He said the saddest part of his job wasn't the declining attendance either. He said the saddest part about his job is that there was never a baptism in 10 years. And I was struck by his comment. And the more I think about it, the more it makes sense to me. See, many times when I ask people how church was for them, And if we do a baptism, that's always a part of the service that they mention. I mean, last week we got to baptize twins. It was doubly good last week. See, people don't remember the passages of scriptures that we read. They don't remember the songs that we sing. And they sure don't remember anything from my sermon. But a baptism, that's going to stick. I I heard of this one tradition that baptizes uh, people out in the lobby of their church. And everybody gathers around the family or gathers around the individual and the minister. And after the baptism, after the, 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 the minister says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the, he, he then hold, hold, hands the baby or, 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 or lets the individual just take a couple steps away. If it's an adult. And the minister puts his hands back in the water and scatters the water across the congregation and says, remember your baptism. Remember doesn't mean the opposite of forget in this instance. Rather, it means to link the present with the past. What the pastor is doing in that instance is he's saying, remember that you too were baptized. Remember that you too have something that's happened on your interior, that God has worked in you, that he's forgiven you of your sin. So the next time we have a baptism, let's celebrate not just for the family, not just for the individual experience of the baptism, though we need to, But we need to celebrate for ourselves. We need to treasure our baptism. We need to be shaped by our baptism. We need to live out our baptism. Because your baptism communicates to you that you belong to Christ and not to yourself. Your baptism communicates that you've been forgiven of your sins no matter how much they haunt you night in and night out. Your baptism communicates to you that you're a part of community, that you're not alone. See, your baptism happens outside of you. You can't get more baptized or less baptized. So when your faith is like a roller coaster, when it's unsteady like it was for Abraham, you need to look outside of yourself. You need something that's more steady, more complete, more reliable than how you feel or what you're doing. And that's what your baptism's for. So where are you at with baptism? I, I, I don't mean, are, we, are you sprinkler or an immerser, immersion person? I don't mean, do you believe in infant baptism or believer's baptism only? What, I, what I'm asking you is, what do you believe it for yourself? Has it simply become a private event that you're disconnected from? Do you ever pull it out and let it preach to you when your experience of your faith is all over the place? Is it just an empty ceremony that has become nothing more than a tradition? See, Jesus intends that you remember his commitment to you to every time you see the water. He knows you're fickle. He knows your faith is a royal and he wants to steady you with his love by reminding you of his covenant with you through baptism over and over and over again. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this external marker that we're so quick to believe that we're Christians because of how well we've done. We're so quick to say that we're not Christians because we've not done so well. But Lord, we have something more than how well or not well we've done to assure us of your love for us, and it's baptism. Lord, thank you what it communicates to us that we're adopted by you, that we're cleansed from our sin, that we're part of a community. And so, Lord, would you continue to use it in our lives, that we would remember it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.